Hello, Five Things listener. Communication is everything, especially for marketers and PR professionals. But if communication is more than your job, if it's your passion, then you should check out the podcast Stories and Strategies. Stories and Strategies is about human communication. It explores the deeper issues impacting marketing and PR professionals, such as artificial intelligence capabilities, behavioral science, behavioral economics, nudge theory, and making communication content and materials more accessible. You'll get all of this and more when you check out Stories and Strategies wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Five Things. It's This Week in Social. Each week, we find the most interesting stories from the social platforms you spend all day thumbing through. And this week, we have new voices on the pod. First is Kane Fair, who made his podcast debut with us last week. He is Gray's Group Director of Social and Connections. Hello, Kane. Hello, Joey. Kane, what is your guilty pleasure TV show? Whoa. This is going to embarrass me, but I'm a huge American Idol fan still. Can you believe that? Wow. Wow. How many seasons has that been on? I couldn't tell you the season number, but I'm sure I've caught at least 75% of them. And I'm I'm a little guilty saying that. Well, that's amazing. <laughs> I, I'm really happy that you've stuck with it for so long. And next is Taylor McLean making her podcast debut. She is a senior planner here at Gray. Hello, Taylor. Hey, Joey. Hey, Kane. Same question for you. What's your guilty pleasure TV show? To go classic here, probably The Real Housewives. And if we're being specific, Beverly Hills. I love that. I can't get enough of the Erica Girardi uh, scandal. Amazing. Well, I'm Joey Scarillo, and I am convinced that The Bachelor and The Bachelorette are just like the regular season for Bachelor in Paradise, which is, in my opinion, more exciting. And it's like the playoffs. And so I think we can all agree that Bachelor in Paradise is everything you want to watch on television. All right, let's get into it. Here are the five things. First up, Kane will break down Snapchat's new web app. Then Taylor will tell us how social platforms continue to take on Be Real. Then Kane explains how Twitter expanded Birdwatch, their fact-checking program. Next, Taylor chats Meta, who opened Facebook Reels API for third-party integration. And finally, Kane will give us an examination of the psychology of creating a social icon. All very exciting. All right, team, let's get into it. Kane is up first. He's going to break down Snapchat's new web app. Kane, tell us about it. Yeah, so Snapchat just came out with a handful of new features. One is inclusive of that desktop version of Snapchat. But before I get into that, I'm going to tap on a couple of the newer updates as well. One of them is chat shortcuts. So now in Snapchat, you are really able to manage your unread messages and also make a much more seamless reply story to your Snapchat friends. So what this looks like is it shows up on the top of your screen and allows you to filter your conversations and stay on top of your chats if there are way too many going on. The second quick one here is the lock screen widget, which on your lock screen on your iPhone, it allows a seamless access direct from a user's home screen into your Snapchat app. So you don't have to click through your apps to find the Snapchat icon and logo. One other one is the question stickers. So similar to Instagram, the question template for Snapchat has been available. It allows you to do a fill in the blank style interaction with your friends. So not only is there a desktop feature, there's a handful of others that have been released. But to get into the main story, initially launched back in July, Snapchat has announced that they are enabling a web version of the app which this allows users to send messages 
conduct video chats and voice calls. Basically, all the central connection elements of the app are now available via your desktop or PC. This also allows you to enable the Snapchat filters that we all know and love, but on your desktop for your video calls. So what does this mean for us? So really for me, I think the expanded availability will make it easier for people to keep in touch with their friends via Snap, whether you be on your phone, your tablet, or your desktop. And also, it's going to be particularly beneficial for the increasing cohort of people that are working from home. So as you're on Zoom or Teams, you also have the ability to stay in touch with your friends via Snap on your desktop, which I think as the audience gets older, and it's not necessarily only going to be a younger demographic platform, this is going to become much more important and a bigger consideration for Snap. The expanded web version in some ways, I think, is an acknowledgement of this shift and also aligns to the new audiences they're trying to tackle and go after as a platform. Yeah, that sounds super exciting for Snapchat. Taylor, my question for you is when you think about who uses Snapchat and how they position themselves as a friend first platform, you know, they've got things like birthdays, notifications on the lock screen, now this web app. Do you think Snap is trying to eat into or create a new version of that Facebook user that would primarily be on desktop, that would be checking in on their friends? Do you think that this is a good play for Snapchat in the Facebook of it all? Yeah, that's a really good way to look at it, Joey. I think it's it's interesting. And I think what they're trying to do is I feel like oftentimes it feels, or at least though we talk about it in the advertising industry, is like Snapchat is almost one of the more dying platforms, but it essentially really isn't the case. I mean, I have a very, very young brother who's just starting high school and Snapchat is is everything. That's like the, the number one platform that they're on. So I think by making it even more kind of accessible, the fact that like you don't even have to go through your phone, through a folder, open an app, the fact that you can just tap on your phone right away from your home screen. It's, it is really interesting. I think in the sense they're, they're trying to make Snapchat, I think just kind of a more natural extension of, you know, who you're communicating to and, and how you're doing it, which to your point around Facebook, I think is interesting when you think back about the origins of Facebook and it really starting as this friends platform first before it became communities and Facebook pages. So I think it's a really smart call for them, especially just given the nature of how competitive social platforms are becoming in this day and age. Yeah. Speaking of social platforms and taking on the competition, Taylor, let's talk about how the other platforms are continually trying to be trying to be be real. Let's talk about it. Yeah, definitely. So we saw this week that TikTok is adding a new feature to its platform called TikTok Now, where users are kind of prompted once a day to take a photo or selfie, if you will, and a 10 second video within a kind of a three minute time span from when they are first notified. The notification will hit your phone. It's titled Time to Now. And this feature has its own kind of tab within the app. And just like all the other social apps that came before it, TikTok is directly responding to the rising population of Be Real with this one. It almost feels like an exact replica, if you will. And I think it's just this realization that Be Real as a platform is becoming really popular, especially as it stands almost for the antithesis of everything that the apps, the other apps traditionally stand for today. So the idea of it's very authentic versus curation. But I think in my opinion, I think Be Real is fundamentally a very different experience. I see it as an app that's really made to connect you with your friends versus an entire network, some of the way which I think the other platforms like TikTok or Instagram kind of operate. So in my eyes, I see Be Real as adding kind of a different value that doesn't necessarily take away or chip at the value that the other platforms like TikTok offers. 
I do wish though that TikTok had kind of stayed true to their roots in, in launching this new feature and just made it video only and not even have an option for a photo because that doesn't feel very in tune with what the platform stands for. Right. You have Instagram trying to be TikTok, TikTok trying to be be real. It's almost like it's best if they could just stay in their own lane. But I'm curious, Kane, what do you think? What is that special sauce? What is it that makes be real important or want to be copied? I mean, there's two that stand out. It's the stickiness of the user interaction. It's that daily check-in. It's the idea that in order to see what your friends are doing, you have to participate. So, you know, as you're getting your Be Real notification, you can't be flipping through your feed until you actually post one on your behalf. So it's the stickiness and the almost the addictive quality of the app that has made it so popular, in my opinion. And on the on the flip side, as Taylor mentioned, it's it's kind of the antithesis of what social has become. It's one of those platforms that it's not one that you're posing for and putting filters on and making the perfect photo and, and driving this like beautified portrait of your life and yourself. It's it's really an in the moment, authentic, natural way of, of showing your friends and your close knit crew, you know, what your real life is, what you actually are doing that isn't connected to a ego or isn't connected to the desire to gather all these likes and comments and, and activity. So those are probably the two main things that that Be Real is, has seen success in, in my opinion. And to be honest, I love it. I think it's awesome. And again, to to loop back what the Taylor was saying, you know, it's not shocking that these apps are trying to capitalize on this user experience. I think the the Be Real application is quite clunky. I think the experience itself is, or the idea of it is, is a grade A, A plus even user experience. But the way that the app is built is clunky. I think one thing that TikTok should have done, to Taylor's point, is make it video only. The fact that they have that 10 sec, I think it's 10 second option for video, it makes it so much different than Be Real. And I think that is one thing that I know from speaking to friends, they wish Be Real had. So all is to say, Be Real, I'm still loyal to it. And TikTok, I understand your play. Yeah, it makes sense for sure. Taylor, have you played around with Be Real yet? I have, yes. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, I kind of like all the rules around it. I think that's what makes it interesting. What were you going to say, Taylor? No, I was going to say, I, I am a big fan of Be Real. And I think, I mean, I also only have like 10 friends on it. So <laughs> it, it feels very intimate compared to the other social platforms. And I love the idea that I only go on the app when I get the notification. I post, I look at what my 10 other friends have posted if they post it and that's it, I'm off. It's kind of like a, I look at it once a day compared to some of the other platforms which send you down a rabbit hole. So there's something refreshing in the sense that you're on it quickly, you do your thing, and then you're off. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, speaking of scrolling, let's get into Twitter, who expanded their birdwatch feature. Kane, why don't you tell us about that? Yeah. So as we know, Twitter as a platform has been the focus for many, many, many years around being the nucleus of spreading fake news and false information. And from that, Twitter created a platform called Birdwatch, which is their community-focused fact-checking program. Birdwatch is a program that was actually first introduced in 2021 as, as an experiment and a way to help deal with this misinformation on Twitter. But generally speaking, Birdwatch notes usually just contain added context to clarify or refute claims made in tweets that may be misleading. These notes are often, you know, contained links or cited sources, but it's a community-focused fact-checking program that, that was launched. But what has now happened is they've announced two new changes. Two of them that stood out at least. Birdwatch will be increasing the number of its contributors, and those Birdwatch tweets, notes, will be seen 
more visibly in timelines across the U.S. In the coming weeks, you might even see across your feed little icons that are saying that this fact has been actually validated or this fact has been refuted and here's a source to find the real information. Why is this important? I think Twitter has always been this place to express yourself, you know, in its truest form of freedom of speech. People turn to Twitter to share opinions across a variety of topics. And I don't think that will ever change. And I truly don't think that should ever change. I think this is one of the kind of the, the core nucleuses of social media and how users are connecting with people with like-minded interests and also expressing themselves in ways that no other platform can. At the same time, with that power that Twitter has, I think it's extremely important to keep it safe and trusted and reliable for those you know, who may be looking for information or highlighting facts or data, especially as it goes out to the masses and especially during times where people are turning to those platforms for news. So I think this change will be great. I think it's one that Twitter had to actually make. I'm actually glad that it turned out this way as a kind of a community-focused fact-checking program. And I also love the name Birdwatch. Yeah, it is a great name for for this feature on Twitter. So Taylor, with all of that coming from Twitter, what do you think will be the major benefit for users? I think it's really just more trust in the information that's being shared on Twitter and feeling that what you're seeing, it's nice when you have a community that is stepping in and that is trying to rectify misinformation on a platform that so often has been kind of the number one source of that. So I think it's really... I think it's really a smart move on Twitter's end. And to Kane's point, I love the idea of it coming from a community. I think that's really smart in a way where it doesn't feel so kind of authoritarian. It'll be interesting to see how this feature maintains throughout the next couple of years. So as we get into another presidential cycle, Kane, do you think that this will maintain? Do you think this will be a good backbone for Twitter? Yeah, I mean, I, what I could see is knowing that this is community based and they're increasing the number of contributors. I think during times of you know politics or anything that has heightened eyes, especially on Twitter or heightened opinions going on, I could see them ramping up the number of experts or the ramping up the number of contributors for a specific topic during a specific time. I would love to see it continue on. I think they're they're setting it up now for a reason. I think they're testing the features and getting it ready for something that will maybe flood the system of data and information, something like a political debate or something like a political election. But I think, in my opinion, if they could figure out a way to ebb and flow with who is contributing during the times of you know cultural moments, that might be a great way to keep it living longer and be a bit more relevant to who is seeing the information and contributing for the fact-checking program. Amazing. All right, let's move over to Meta, who opened Facebook Reels API for third-party integration. Taylor, break that down for us. Okay, so Facebook announced this week that they are now allowing social media software to post real content for the first time, because historically it's been very gated when it comes to third-party integration. So essentially what that means is they're making it much easier for brands and creators that have kind of a large format content calendar in which they kind of use some of these softwares like Sprout to really just be able to help them create and manage their reels. And the reason that Facebook is implementing this is they're really trying to amplify and put emphasis on the kind of real content on their platform to kind of combat the success of TikTok. And especially because across the board at Meta, Reels is bringing in a ton of revenue. So that's kind of where Facebook is looking to focus going forward. Yeah, I mean, this is a this is a great announcement from Meta. Kane, what do you think the major takeaway here is for brands? Well, I think for brands, I mean, a lot of the 
a lot of the clients and brands we work with as an agency are leveraging these tools, these software to keep on top of their content calendars. And in order for us as an agency and, and as a brand or a client to be as successful as possible, making it seamless and easy for us to post specific types of content that can help our storytelling or help our marketing materials is only going to benefit us. Historically, as as we just mentioned, the API of Facebook and Meta has been one that's been quite close. If you look at social listening, for example, they're pretty much a no-no opening up anything for second party sources to go in and mine their conversations or mine their data. So I understand that their API has been one that's been a gated source. But in order to allow clients and brands like us to be as active as possible on their platforms, they need to make it as seamless and as easy as us to create that content. And when we're managing these large format content calendars and creating content posting on a daily basis, an extra step is actually a, a big deal. So having that be seamlessly connected to our platforms, whether that be Sprout Social or not, it's only going to benefit us. It's only going to benefit them if this is a main source of content they're looking to ramp up. That's great. Well, this sounds like a big announcement and one that will make our lives and our brand's lives a little bit easier. All right. Take us home, Kane. This should be a fun one, a little bit different than anything we've talked about here on the show so far. Get into the examination of the psychology for creating a social icon. Sounds quite smart, doesn't it? As you know, and as maybe you are unaware of, there's this interesting psychology of colors and typography. I actually took a course in college as I was going through my graphic design degree around the, the psychology of color and the psychology of typography in marketing. So as we're looking at how do you create the most effective icon or the most effective content for your audience, it's really important to take into consideration not only the brand elements, but what types of colors are stemming from those brand elements. Imagine going through you know, fast food restaurants. Think of one, Burger King, McDonald's, whatever it is, I guarantee you those colors are probably some sort of red and some sort of yellow. And those red and yellow colors are chosen for a very specific reason. There's personality and emotional traits that come along with red, you know, whether that be speed or impulse or along those lines. And then yellow is very much around encouragement, attention grabbing, a handful of other emotional connections to that color. Similar with blue. If you look at blue, it's a very trusted color. It's a very trusted source. It taps into your brain. So a lot of financial, a lot of medical, a lot of these industries that are trying to portray a specific feeling to a user are tapping into these colors and even specific fonts subtly to give you a sense of what they're trying to achieve. So as we look at in your social media content, or if you're setting up a social media page, if you're doing it on you know, your own personal behalf or on, on behalf of a brand, always take into consideration you know, the subtleties of what colors you're using and the subtleties of what types of types of typography you're using. Because you know, if you're going after a, an audience that is very geared towards movement, you may not want to choose a blue because blue is a very soft moving color when it comes to the subtleties of how your brain is reacting with it. So all is to say, obviously not very much the most social update, but I think still one that's very interesting in how you're creating your content, how you're creating your marketing materials, and how you're portraying your brand to your users in the emotional and subtle ways that come with psychology. Very, very fascinating. I always think about this too, when it's like, it seems like almost every industry has a red brand and a blue brand. You know, you've got your Coke and Pepsi, Toyota, Ford, Target, Walmart. And it, it is kind of interesting to think about what those mean psychologically. I'm curious, Taylor, 
If you had to put a color to your brand, what color would you make your brand? That's a good question. This is going to be such a biased answer because I'm just going to bring in my favorite colors. I have to go orange and green, which I went to University of Miami. So orange and green are our color. So even even more biased. But no, I mean, love the idea of when I think about it now, I mean, automatically I thought of green, but I know green kind of stands for wealth. So I'll take that as a as a positive thing. <laughs> All right. From the canes to cane, what would your brand colors be? I'm going to go down the same same route. I'm going to be biased and go with my favorite color, but a secondary color that would be a bit more emotional. Yellow is my favorite color. And I think one thing that I've found about yellow is that instills clarity and optimism. So I'm going to give that a big check. Yes. I think that's a great thing to stand for. And then beyond yellow, I'm going to go with a random one. And this has nothing to do with because I like the Lakers, but I'm going purple because I think it also in marketing stands for relaxation or calming. So if I could personally stand for someone that's optimistic and calming to my friends as a rock or a source of escape, I am all for it. Well, nobody asked, but for me, I think it would be hard not to go with traditional black. Most of my ensemble is black and it just feels very appropriate for me. But if I had to pick one of the colors that were in the article, I probably would go with like a blue and an orange combination. I feel like those complementary colors complement me and my brand, which is, I think, calm and exciting. All right, friends, that does it for us this week. If you don't already, please be sure to follow us, share us, review us, like us, write to us with your questions, comments, concerns, points of interest or complaints, or just send us a thing that you want us to discuss. You can do all of that by emailing us at podcasts at gray.com. Of course, I want to thank Taylor McLean and Kane Fair for joining us on the pod. You were great. And as always, thanks to Danielle Hunt and Amanda Fuentes and the crew over at Gramercy Park Studios behind the scenes for making us sound great. And finally, thank you, listener. You are great. And we'll see you next week. And in the meantime, be social. The Five Things are written and researched by the Social and Connections team at Gray New York. Produced by Joey Scarillo and Danielle Hunt. Mixed at Gramercy Park Studios by Guy Rosemarin and Amanda Fuentes. With post-production support from Ned Martin. Additional support by John Jenkinson, Christina Hyde, and Liz McGovern. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.